Welcome to episode 176 of This Week in Linux, recorded live on November 20th, 2021. From the Destination Linux Network, I'm Michael Tanell. If you're new to the show, this is the podcast that will keep you up to date with what's going on in the Linux world, and I'll give you my take as a 20-year-plus Linux user. In fact, this is your weekly source for Linux good news. This episode of This Week in Linux is sponsored by DigitalOcean and by Bitwarden. First in the show this week, we have some legal-ish, more drama news to talk about because I just think this is an interesting thing to discuss, and it is related to OBS versus Streamlabs. Now, what I mean is not really versus, it's not like a legal battle, but it's kind of like a sketchy action done by a company that is being now being talked about. So what happened was, on November 16th, of this 2021, uh, Streamlabs released uh, Streamlabs Studio, which is a cloud capture software for the Xbox, uh, you know, Series S and Series X and whatever terrible name that they named the new the next one. I assume after the release, the streaming service Lightstream accused Streamlabs of plagiarizing their promotional materials down to the marketing words and layout of their landing page for their service. They even said that it was comparing it to like plagiarized homework. And if you look at how they did it, the text of even the reviews, down to the reviews, was pretty similar. So I think it is fair to say that they took some of that stuff. We're going to talk about that as well as some other stuff because later that same day, the OBS Studio team tweeted that Streamlabs used the name OBS for their products giving the false appearance of being in partnership with them, despite OBS Studio having previously denied permission to Streamlabs to use the term OBS. Now, Streamlabs OBS has been considered a hostile fork of OBS by some members of the community, and with uh, OBS Studio themselves speaking up against it, this garnered a lot of attention. Now, in addition to the community, now streamers or even other companies have spoken up against Streamlabs. Now, some of the streamers who have talked about it have said that they're not—they're going to boycott the product if changes are not addressed or whatever. Like, what exactly they mean by that? Because this is a this is a thing that's been happening for a long time, so it might be some people are bothered bothered by it in general, and other people are just kind of like saving face. Whatever you can decide on that one, but other companies like uh, Elgato and OneUpCoin have also spoken out on Twitter about Streamlabs copying their own products as well. So, for example, Elgato makes a product and a mobile app called Stream Deck. Streamlabs decided to make their own mobile app similar to the Stream Deck. What did they call it? Streamlabs Stream Deck. Very creative name there. So they seem to have a history about you know, things doing this kind of thing repeatedly. So another interesting thing about the company's history is that if you look into it, you'll see that the they had a name collision for the very first thing they did. So Streamlabs was originally called Twitch Alerts, but they weren't associated with Twitch, but they called it Twitch Alerts anyway. So eventually they had to change the name of the company, which became Streamlabs. So it seems like there might be a pattern here. Anyway, in the streaming world, Streamlabs has often been stated by some as an inferior product to OBS, and very few plugins that I've seen uh, bother to even support Streamlabs OBS. Uh, this resulted in YouTubers who give OBS tips to often specify, and I quote, no, it doesn't support Streamlabs, and you shouldn't either, when giving some tips. So naturally, I never even bothered to try Streamlabs OBS, 
because of those warnings that I had seen. Uh, but in 2019, Logitech acquired Streamlabs, which makes me wonder just how aware Logitech is of these tactics used by Streamlabs before and after the acquisition. And I'm sure Logitech doesn't want to have any of this negative uh, press based on actions carried out by a subsidiary. So I'm curious to like how they would react to this. Now, we have had updates to this with some responses from Streamlabs themselves. Uh, Streamlabs apologized to Lightstream in a tweet claiming it was placeholder text that wasn't supposed to be used. However, taking a competitor's marketing text for a landing page, including reviews to make your own marketing material, even if it's doing a placeholder text, that's not really placeholder text. That's copying and pasting and then maybe rewording, but you're still taking what they did even if you do reword it because you're still, you could say inspired by, but you know, placeholder text is stuff like lorem ipsum delor sit amet gibberish that you would see in random places for the internet. Like you'll, like an, if you look at templates for website creation or whatever, you'll see it everywhere there. Sometimes you'll see it where people who take a template and then don't change the text and it's kind of funny, but not relevant to the, anyway. Back to the actual topic. Streamlabs has tweeted about the situation related to the Streamlabs OBS issue with by promising to remove the OBS part of the name of its product. So essentially it's going to be Streamlabs. However, the tweet where they promise to remove the term OBS includes OBS twice while they're describing their product. So they said we're going to remove OBS and then they call it Streamlabs OBS twice when they do. So that's kind of weird, but not surprising because after learning all about this stuff, I didn't really have, I didn't really have a good feeling about Streamlabs for a while, but now seeing all this stuff, I'm glad I made the decision to not use it and just stick with OBS because OBS is awesome. And, uh, ver thank you very much for the people who make OBS because it is a game changer for streaming for everyone, no matter what platform they are. So, uh, thank you again for making it and making it possible for me to do this show live like I do. So that's why I wanted to cover it. One, because it's just weird and interesting as a topic. And two, to thank OBS for making such an awesome piece of software, even dealing with these kinds of uh, irritants, as it were. If you'd like to learn more about this news or about OBS in general, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show, we have some really interesting news related to a uh, previous topic we covered last week, and that is uh, Linus from Linus Tech Tips had a rather unfortunate experience during the, the Linux Daily Driver Challenge that they had with Pop! OS. Uh, I made a reaction video to this video. If you would like to see that, I'll have that linked in the show notes. But to be clear, this issue that, was, that happened was caused by a rather nasty bug in the packaging for Steam. It's not really necessarily Steam's fault, not necessarily uh, Pop! OS's fault, or, or any, you know, it's that. It's just some package dependency issues on Launchpad for Steam happened, which created this bug, and it was just like a weird fluke that it happened, especially during the time it happened, which is unfortunate. But it's a bit complicated how this all happened, so I'm not going to go into the full details, but what is important is that it happened and it needed to be fixed. Over the years, people have suggested that this kind of problem could happen at some point because of the yes do as I say is not clear enough, and it's it shouldn't be as easy to do as it is. But when Linus had the issue, uh, a giant spotlight was put on this particular topic. And to be fair to, again, like to all of those involved, the fault for this happening is, is shared and not solely on any one person or any specific project. You could argue that Linus should have read more carefully what he was doing. 
You could argue that System76 should have done more QA testing. You could argue that Debian shouldn't make it so that apt can be used to easily bypass the warnings and also tell you how to bypass it really quickly. You could argue all of these things above. Uh, but regardless of who is at fault, what is important is that the issue has been addressed in many angles. So System76 made a patch themselves to make it harder to do this kind of thing. Then Debian made a change to apt to make this much harder to do. And even while not involved directly, KDE recently updated Discover to address this sort of thing as well, which I think it's really great to see all these, this effort to make sure this kind of thing doesn't happen again. And the yes, do as I say option has been removed with this latest update to apt for apt uh, 2.3.12. So this is definitely a very good, uh, good set of news because uh, System76 has been working with Debian to address this, and I'm glad to see that they have done so because uh, apt making it no longer having this ability to do this, the solver, uh, automatic solver thing to remove essential or protected packages is a good thing. So if a dependency problem does occur, then it needs to be resolved manually by the user rather than app doing it just by typing that in. You can, of course, still overwrite this if you want to, but it won't tell you how to do that in the error message, which is good, because that would solve the problem. So the problem would... You, Linus still would have had an issue, but he wouldn't have had a massively system-breaking, appar uh, apparently system-breaking issue. Uh, so it would have been more of like Steam wouldn't have installed. Now, that would have been annoying, but you could have dug in more to find out what it was and then solve that and you know maybe ask questions about like why this is not and that kind of thing. So it wouldn't have the same kind of result. It would still be a, a bad experience, but not as bad, sort of. So, But again, that was just a fluke. Normally wouldn't happen, and if you try Papa West now, you're not going to have that problem. So uh, System76 also said they have plans to make further improvements to the pop shop, uh, the GUI for the store, so that users don't have to fall back to the terminal in the first place, which I think is fantastic news. I'm very glad to hear that. But I also, you know, maybe some other software stores will do the same thing, like Katie Discover's doing and uh, the other ones. I hope they all do it. But there you go. If you'd like to learn more about this particular news, I'll have links in the show notes below. Next in the show, we have the latest release of the Steam for Linux client. It has been updated and add a lot of cool stuff. For example, it adds support for VA API hardware encoding on Linux. Now, if you if you don't want this, this feature enabled for some reason, you can disable it, but it's very cool that they have it. And also Valve added support for DMA buff or DMA BUF, DMABUF. That's probably not, you're not supposed to, I probably not. Uh, Pipewire capture on Linux, which can be enabled by launching Steam with a specific argument. It also adds support for 4K capturing via Pipewire, which is awesome. And it adds initial support for games using uh, CEG DRM through Proton, improves game streaming on Linux systems. And this update also improves the overall performance of the Steam client and reduces disk IO when updating Mesa caches. If you'd like to learn more of the latest release of Steam for Linux, I'll have links in the show notes below. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by DigitalOcean. Now is the perfect time to jump into the DigitalOcean. Their new app platform service helps you build modern cloud-native apps for way less money. With the app platform, you can build, deploy, and scale apps and static websites faster and easier than ever with a simple, 
intuitive interface. Simply point the app platform to your GitHub or your GitLab repository and let it do all of the heavy lifting for you. Whether you're using Node.js, Python, Go, PHP, Ruby, static sites, Docker, or container images, all of this stuff can be handled by the app platform. And all you have to do is point it to your GitHub or GitLab repository and just let it do its thing. And by running the app platform in their own infrastructure, it helps keep the cost significantly lower than with other products. So you can also get a smoother migration because DigitalOcean, in, on top of using their own infrastructure, they're also using Kubernetes, making it smoother migration path so you can take control of your infrastructure setup. And as a listener of This Week in Linux and a member of the DLN community, you can get started with the app platform for free. Actually, better than free, because when you go to do.co slash DLN, you can get a $100 free credit on the app platform. So go again, go to do.co slash DLN to get started with your $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's app platform service. And we want to thank DigitalOcean for sponsoring this episode of This Week in Linux. Up next in the show is the latest release of Laka, and it is version 3.6. What's new in Laka is... A RetroArch has been updated to 1.9.13.2. There's an option to control the menu by all users that has been returned. Also, there's a new option for automatic uh, frame delay, as well as been updates to the core features such as uh, Beetle FCE. Uh, there's also been updated to MAME 2003, Scum VM, and many other engines for uh, the Lib Retro cores. Uh, there's also been updates to the Mesa drivers as well as the Linux kernel and many more. Now, for those who are unfamiliar with what these things mean, Laka is a lightweight Linux distribution that transforms a small computer like a Raspberry Pi into a retro gaming console. That's its purpose. It's an appliance-style distribution to turn uh, hardware into a retro gaming console. I talked about this in the latest video on the channel reacting to Linus Tech Tips Challenge uh, as they ve they feature the distros icon when talking about the all the options that are available for Linux, for Linux distros and that kind of thing. If you haven't checked that video out, links in the show notes. But if you're interested in checking out uh, Laka, I think it is a fantastic option for anybody who's interested in uh, retro uh, retro consoles and retro gaming. You can uh, just pay, basically take a spare Raspberry Pi if you have one and put Laka on there and get started with all sorts of different emulation tools. Uh, there's a lot of great stuff in there. So if you're interested, I'll have links in the show notes below for Laka 3.6. The Mesa project has released a new version as well with the 3D graphics library version 21.3. What's new in this latest release? Well, the NGG or the Next Generation Geometry shader-based culling is now enabled by default on RDNA 2 GFX 10.3 GPUs for RAD-V. Uh, it should help improve a lot of the performance for those types of GPUs. Also, the Zinc driver that runs OpenGL over Vulkan has had a ton of work done on it, uh, with also it now supporting GLES 3.2. Uh, Intel Iris now has threaded shader compilation. Uh, there's been updates to the Panfrost drivers that now uses the GLES uh, 3.1 standard. VA API gained support for uh, AV1 videos. They also added a Wayland workaround for transparency functionality, plus many more Vulkan and OpenGL extensions are now supported in the latest version of Mesa. Plus, also, experimental ray tracing, ray tracing for AMD, RAD-V, which, which is for Vulkan, and this is really, really cool. Now, it's still early days, so it's no, it still needs some more time to bake in the system, but it's very, very cool, and I am excited to play with that. 
Now, for those who are not familiar, the Mesa project began as an open source implementation of the OpenGL specification. It's a system for rendering interactive 3D graphics. Now, it's grown a lot over the years. It was originally just for OpenGL, but now it has support for uh, OpenGL ES, OpenCL, OpenMax, VDPAU, VAAPI, uh, Vulkan, EGL, and more. A lot of stuff. And Mesa is used in many different types of environments, ranging from software emulation to hardware acceleration for modern GPUs and a lot. So basically, Mesa is a very, 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 very important piece to the Linux ecosystem and the Linux desktop, especially for the graphics support that it offers. Uh, Mesa is also the place where the work for out-of-the-box support for AMD and Intel hardware is done. So for those who, who have AMD hardware like I do and don't have to worry about drivers ever, because if you're an NVIDIA user, unfortunately you do have to install the NVIDIA drivers in order to get the full uh, power of your hardware. Whereas with AMD users, you just install the distro and you're good to go. This is the project that makes all that possible. So again, I wanted to cover Mesa drivers because it is a very, very important project and doesn't get a lot of attention because it's one of those low level, you know, library type of things, but it's very critical. And that's why I wanted to highlight on this episode of This Week in Linux. If you'd like to learn more about Mesa and the latest release of 21.3, I'll have links in the show notes below. Up next in the show is the latest release of Ubuntu Touch, and that is OTA 20. This release is going to be supported on 40 devices, eight of which are new devices to the platform. They've implemented notification LED support for devices with Halium 9 base. They've also improved localization support for some regions, as well as added a new custom notification sound that you can change. So you could already have changed like a custom ringtone, but now you can customize notifications of pretty much every sound if you want to. Uh, and you know what's kind of funny about that? I used to customize my sounds a ton back in the day when I first got into smartphones, but now I, I haven't customized my sounds for ringtones or notifications. And I think I, I think I probably should just so I know if someone is calling me specifically or like who, what number they're dialing or who, you know, if they're in my address book or not and that kind of thing. But somehow I never got around to doing that. And my, I'm on my latest phone, even though I've had it for about two years now or a little over two years, I think. Uh, it's great that Ubuntu Touch has added this ability. It's just kind of funny to me because I didn't notice it wasn't there before because I haven't changed anything for my Android device or my Ubuntu Touch device. Anyway, if you'd like to learn more about the latest release of Ubuntu Touch or about OTA 20, I'll have links in the show notes below. As well as also be sure to check out the the notes if you're curious what devices are supported. There a list of what of those 40 devices is included in the blog post for the latest release. So links to that in the show notes. This episode of This Week in Linux is brought to you by Bitwarden. Get started right now with your free account at bitwarden.com slash DLN. Bitwarden is an awesome password manager that allows you to have peace of mind knowing that your online accounts are secure. If you're not familiar with password managers, uh, this is something you definitely need to check out because it allows you to have peace of mind knowing that it's secure and by doing how to do it really, but it creates a bunch of different tools. So for example, it has a secured vault to be able to store all your passwords in, an automatic generator for your passwords, and even be able to automatically fill in passwords in login forms so you don't have to do any of this stuff. And you can access your data across many different types of devices, whether it's your web browser, your mobile apps, desktop applications, or even on the command line. Bitwarden also seals and encrypts your data 
on your devices before it ever leaves your devices. This is very important. This local end-to-end encryption is something that makes this a fantastic solution, as well as being open source software, which is one of my favorite things about Bitwarden as well. So go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And did I mention you can get started for free? Well, you can, but I also think you want to check out their premium accounts because for less than a dollar per month, yes, less than a dollar per month will give you access to one gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F Duo, Vault Health Reports, Bitwarden Authenticator for temporary one-time passwords, priority customer service, and so much more. Again, for less than a dollar per month. They also have new uh, options you could do for uh, family accounts and business accounts. You can do organizational vaults where you can share stuff back and forth between uh, different accounts. So if you want to help someone get started with a password manager, it makes it a lot easier by using Bitwarden. So make the smart move like many of the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash DLN to get started. And thanks again to Bitwarden for sponsoring This Week in Linux. Up next in the show, Canonical recently announced new plans that they have for their documentation efforts with Ubuntu. Daniela Prochita, I, I tried my best, uh, posted the new plans on the Ubuntu.com blog detailing the goals for their new efforts. Uh, Daniela is a director of engineering at Canonical and also the author of the Diatoxis documentation framework. That one I don't know, because ironically I couldn't find documentation for the pronunciation of that word. Uh, but this is, of course, the framework they will be using for their new efforts. And documentation is one of those tasks that are incredibly important, but also often avoided. I've struggled uh, with this particularly because of like different projects that I've worked on that I've been a part of over the years. Ubuntu has had issues themselves with outdated documentation for years. People would, would recommend you know ignoring the wiki and only use stuff like Ask Ubuntu and other sources, and this is, of course, not ideal. Canonical posted about the documentation framework back in July, and how is the best way to implement said framework? Well, hire the person who made it. So I got to say that's a pretty solid plan. So now I know some of you may be thinking, why is an announcement for fixing documentation newsworthy? Well, this is a fair question because it's only a plan to fix the documentation, not the actual fixing of it or deployment of said fixed. Uh, But the reason I wanted to cover it on the show is actually two reasons. Uh, One, I wanted to highlight how important documentation is. Access to documentation is very, very important and sadly, in some cases, non-existent. And I would consider myself fairly technical, but while trying out a new project, if the documentation isn't quite there, it might take some effort to trial and error to go through. And while most people aren't interested in doing that. Now, for a long time, I was willing to do that, but not really anymore. Like, I still do it sometimes, but if there's documentation, that's much, much better. And I would like for people to, for any project, to focus on making sure they have the best documentation they have, they, they, can, they can do, you know, and, you know, or like maybe ask the community to help with that if they don't have the time to do it themselves. Because it's kind of a thankless job, documentation, but it's a very important job. And the other reason I wanted to cover it is I wanted to pose a question to all of you, the Twillers out there in the Twilliverse. Which distro do you think has the best documentation? Now, I know there are going to be some Arch fans who will instantly jump to make claim that ArchWiki is the best, but let's give this question a bit more nuance than that. Instead of a general, what has the best documentation, let's make it a two-part question. One, which distros have the best documentation for technical value? I have some guesses of what people might say for that one. And two, which distros have the best documentation for average users? 
I'm very curious what your thoughts are in this. So let me know in the comments below or on the Destination Linux forum. I'll have a link to that forum thread in the show notes as well. So I'm very curious what you think about this. Uh, links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have some news coming up in the next release of Plasma. Uh, Nate Graham of KDE has released some great news on his blog in the latest This Week in KDE post. Uh, KDE Plasma 5.24 will feature a new overview. Now, we talked about this on a previous episode as well, but with the latest news, we now know that this new overview is going to be integrated with KRunner, which is awesome. For those who don't know what KRunner is or how awesome it is, it's a very powerful launcher available in Plasma, which you can use right now. It's been available for uh, 15 years at least that I can remember, uh, and it's it's fantastic. If you want to use it, you just hit, uh, if you're in Plasma right now, Alt-Space, which will open KRunner, and very cool. You can do a lot of stuff with that. You can do calculations. You can do, you can do a bunch of stuff, and if you want to check out what all you can do, or a good set of what you can do, uh, check out the video, 17 Plasma Tips that I made. Uh, I'll have that linked in the show notes, and you can see like a demo of KRunner in action. Uh, also coming up in, with KDE Plasma in the next release, we're going to have a new calendar app, which I'm excited for, and calendar with a K. At 0.2.0 is now available to test out for those who are wanting to beta test it and give feedback and that sort of it's not it's still in development it still needs some work but it uh, so far I've been playing it with it with Infedora and it has a lot of potential I really really like it it's very it's clean it's it's very nicely designed and it just it's what I want in a calendar app and I can't wait till the the final release is coming out because uh, well I I recently got into start using calendars again, and previously there's not been the best options for calendars, and I was very excited to see it, and I'm also very excited that my testing shows a lot of potential. And if you want to try it out for yourself, you can get packages uh, for OpenSUSE, Fedora, and Arch available for calendar 0.2.0. And there's a lot more uh, coming on the next Plasma. If you'd like to learn more, be sure to subscribe to the show, whether you're using RSS feed for a podcast app or you just want to subscribe on YouTube. Uh, we will be covering PDE Plasma 524 when it does release in much more detail when that happens. So, or for now, I'll have links to the blog post for This Week in KDE if you want to check out what's currently coming. Links in the show notes. Up next in the show, we have some Google news and a little bit of drama that I wanted to talk about. So, for example, we have Google Summer of Code, or GSOC. It has been known as an initiative for getting students involved in open source software development over the course of a summer uh, while receiving like a grant from Google to do so. And this year, for 2021, they made some changes where they shortened the length of GSOC, and they also cut the amount that the stipend was going to be, uh, they said, due to COVID. And there was a lot of people worried about what might happen in the future for next year, for example. Well, there's going to be a lot of changes. If you want to learn more about what happened this year, check out episode 137 of Twill. But for what's coming up in next year, very interesting stuff. They're being making a lot of changes. Uh, the biggest change is that it will no longer be open to just students. Now it's going to be open to basically everyone who's 18 years and older. So if you're 18 years or older, regardless of what you're doing or why you want to be a part of it, you can now request to be a part of the Google Summer of Code. Now, GS, GSOC will now be open, like I said, to everyone. They say the reason is because they want to help those going through career change, people who are self-taught and want to learn more, or returning to the workforce and that sort of stuff. Uh, if you're one of those and you want to try it out, 
There you go. Uh, they also they they minimize the amount of hours for the Google Summer of Code of this year to 175, but 2022 will increase it back to 350, as well as keep the 175 for projects that want to have smaller, uh, you know, all for smaller work to be done. So there's now going to be both of them, and they typically do this over a 12 week period, but they're now going to be making it uh, 12 week or 22 weeks. So they're expanding Google Summer of Code a lot. So for people who are worried about it when it was changed this year, um, you don't have to worry about it anymore. It's going to be back to where it was and then some. Uh, so there you go. Now, the next thing I want to talk about is a little bit of drama related to uh, Google because uh, Google recently held an online Chrome Dev Summit, including an Ask Me Anything session. Now, as you would imagine, some of these questions might be interesting. And in this session, there were some that were even awkward uh, for, for Google to be answering uh, concerning browser standard strategy. Now, I don't know how or if Google vets the questions, but I would assume they do. But one question I was super interested in to see how they would respond was, uh, and I quote, given the court proceedings against AMP, why should anyone trust Flock or any other Google initiatives ostensibly focused on privacy? Very strong way to ask this question, and I think it's quite interesting. Now, uh, they also had another question that I was very curious about. Why does Adobe's new Photoshop for the web work only with Chrome and Edge and not Firefox? This is notable since there is already a web-based web -based alternative uh, to Photoshop called PhotoP, and it works great in Firefox and arguably better in Firefox than it does in Chromium browsers. So it's a very interesting question. Now, the community acknowledged that Google did respond to these questions, but many felt they didn't really answer the questions, which is not that surprising. I just think it's in general like interesting overall. So for those who want to learn more about what questions were asked in this AMA or just want to see how they responded, I'll have links in the show notes for that. Uh, I thought it was pretty interesting overall. So the keynote and the Q&A itself, I've linked in the show notes, as well as uh, information about the Google Summer of Code for 2022. If you want to learn more about that, links to all of this stuff in the show notes. Thanks for watching this episode of This Week in Linux. If you like what I do here on the show, please like that smash button and be sure to subscribe. If you'd like to support the show and the channel, we have multiple ways to contribute. We have Patreon, sponsors, and others. You can learn more by going to tuxdigital.com contribute. And if you do become a patron of the channel and the show, you can join me during the live streams in the recording stadium to discuss st stuff between the topics or just hang out every week after the show, as well as before the show, now that we start a little bit early and do a, po a patron pre-show, as well as a patron post-show. So you can find links on Patreon and sponsors for joining that. You can also support the show by ordering the Linux is Everywhere t-shirt or the This Week in Linux shirt at dealinstore.com. Plus, while you're there, check out all the other cool stuff that is available at dealinstore by, going, by checking out the hats, the mugs, the hoodies, the stickers, all sorts of stuff, dealinstore.com. If you'd like some more podcasting goodness from me, then while you're at the Destination Linux website, you can, or Destination Linux Network website, you can check out all the cool uh, podcasts that are there on the network, including two that I am also a part of, which is Destination Linux and Hardware Addicts. So I have links to those in the show notes as well. And just a reminder, this show is live every Saturday at 1 p.m. Eastern or 1800 UTC. So join us in the live chat room to discuss all the latest Linux news each and every week by going to dealinlive.com. And thanks again for watching. I'm Michael Snell with the Destination Linux Network, and I'll see you next week for another episode of your weekly source for Linux good news.